you pray with me? Oh God, guide us by your light and your word to Bethlehem that we might somehow meet the Christ child anew this morning. Amen. The second lesson is from Matthew chapter 2, 1 through 12. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem asking, Where is the child who's been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it has been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you've found him, bring me word, so that I may also go and pay him homage. When they had heard the king, they set out, And there ahead of them went the star that they had seen at its rising, until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then opening their treasure chest, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, They left for their own country by another road. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This epiphany season, which will run through the beginning of March, we will think about Christ appearing in the ordinary, Christ in the routine, Christ in the everyday, Christ in the silence. This story hardly seems ordinary, with its moving stars and the, the, the foreboding dreams with the gold and frankincense and myrrh. But in fact, it's precisely a story about God being among the ordinary, the normal, the everyday, and God not being in the palace. There's more that we don't know about the Magi than that we really do know. Magi is the word in the Greek, wise men, that we have in our text. They aren't kings, as the legend goes. Not kings, at least in the sense that we think of kings. Maybe they're from the east. It's probable, uh, but we're not sure. Some tradition holds that maybe they're from all over, that they represent sort of all peoples. But it seems likely that maybe they're from the east going towards Jerusalem, from where Persia would have been, where Iran is today. Uh, Maybe there are three, but that's just based on the gifts There might as well have been more or less, probably more. It says wise men in the text, but maybe there were women among them. Maybe there were women in the caravan that was traveling with them. We don't know. You can't rule it out. What we do know is that as sure as there will be terrible music performances and Ryan Seacrest welcoming in the new year in Times Square, the Magi will always be there welcoming us, ushering us from the season of Christmas into the season of Epiphany. 
I particularly like a theory that I, I, I read up on this week a little bit about the wise men being uh, Zoroastrian. Um, Zoroastrianism, I don't even know if I'm saying that right. It's a tricky word. Zoroastrianism is, uh, was probably the most significant religion in Persia at the time. It's one of the oldest religions. It was one of the first monotheistic religions to sort of be written down in, in the world. Uh, and it started when a prophet, Zoaster, um, had, had, had visions. And scholars of Zoroastrianism were experts, expert astrologers. They looked up at the sky to watch the stars and see what the stars portended. And people still do that today. Um, there are 190,000 Zoroastrians left in the world today. So one theory is that they're from Persia, they're stargazers, these are probably Zoroastrian, they're probably an entirely different religion, and it wouldn't have been outside of the Zoroastrian experience to see a star and to be convinced that something was happening in another country, that um, there are even other reports of Zoroastrians going to find other virgin births, to find prophets in other religions, and so it makes sense, maybe, maybe this is the story of Zoroastrians traveling to Jerusalem to find this new king that the stars had been prophesying. Matthew tells us the story of the wise men in part to help us understand that what's happening in Jesus is not just a Jewish phenomena. It's something that's going to affect the entire world. In fact, the cosmos, the stars themselves have aligned themselves because something so significant is happening. And even people from other religions are recognizing the significance of what's happening. Even the Persians are coming to pay Christ homage. Whoever they are, they travel for a long time, likely over a year. And they come first to Herod. Herod is near the end of his reign. His reign ends in 4 BC, which is pretty close to when these events take place. I also um, discovered this week that Herod dies from chronic kidney failure that he probably had for several years, and he was diagnosed by researchers from ABC News not that long ago based on, uh, based on reading the things about Herod's life and the symptoms that he seemed to have over the last few years of his life. They, they figure he probably had chronic kidney uh, disease that killed him and gangrene as well. He did not die well. And he's near the end of his life, which perhaps makes him particularly volatile. And maybe that's why all of Jerusalem is terrified when they find out that Herod is terrified. Because whenever Herod is terrified, people lose their lives. He uh, famously kills his own son because he knows that his son will succeed him. And he's so terrified of someone taking his power that he's willing to kill his own son. Um, in, In preparation for his funeral, he orders that... Um, dozens of other people are killed along, along with him when he dies so that the whole city will mourn because he knows that they won't mourn for him. He is a disturbed and insecure and power-hungry and fearful man. And for all his enormous power, he is the most scared man in any room he walks into. The wise men don't seem to necessarily understand how dangerous Herod is. They come and it's almost comical how matter of fact they tell Herod, hey, we're looking for the new king. As if that's not going to upset Herod. Um, they, they say it's so matter of factly. Do you know where this new king is being born? And Herod immediately is frightened and calls 
everyone together to find out where this might be happening. Um, Miroslav Volf points out uh, a really lovely epiphany note that, um, that Herod and the wise men believe the same thing, that the Christ child has been born and that the new king is here. Um, but of course, how you receive that news makes all the difference in the world. Um, so Herod is frightened. He calls all the scribes, all the religious wisdom he can together, and he points the wise men towards Bethlehem and says, hey, come back. Let me go worship him as well. This is great. There's a new king. Fabulous. Send, send me word when you find him. And the wise men don't necessarily see through Herod's plan because God has to intervene and send a dream to the wise men to make sure that they reroute and go home another way. The wise men um, seem a little bit naive. They miss the mark a little bit, but who can blame them? They set out looking for a king, so it makes sense to go to Jerusalem, the seat of power. They want to find royalty, so they go to the palace. They're looking for the one who will reign, so they go to the king, the one called Great, Herod the Great. But the scribes open up the scriptures and send the Magi to a hamlet called the House of Bread, Bethlehem, in the hill country. If you blink, you'll miss it. And Joseph and Mary are probably staying with Joseph's aunt, some relative of some sort. That's, that's, that was usually the setup. You lived with extended family. It's still the setup in, in, in Bethlehem. Um, you live with, with family. Maybe they had a couple of rooms on the side that were just for themselves, but it is certainly an unremarkable place where they stay. The star leads the astrologers from Persia who are some other religion from some other culture who speak some other language to a small home where they bow in worship of a toddler. It's a ridiculous sight. Matthew tells us about the Magi to show us that Jesus is really the Christ. He has to tell us because how would you ever get there on your own? How would you ever know otherwise? Who would ever expect God to show up in such a lowly way? Who would ever go to Bethlehem without a star to guide you there? It reminded me of why John says he writes his gospel. John says that he writes his gospel so that you may believe and that by believing you may have life in his name. Because if John doesn't write that the crucifixion, that the crucified one was actually in his fullest glory on the cross and that the cross is actually the key to glory, you'd never get there on your own. And Luke writes his gospel account for Theophilus. He says, quote, um, in consecutive order, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you've been taught. Because how would Theophilus ever know that the kingdom of God had come, since it never came with neon lights or executive orders, but in the form of a short, stocky miser of a tax collector? who becomes Mother Teresa when Christ simply calls his name. How would any of us ever know if they didn't tell us? What I mean to say is this, if it were up to me, there would be no doubt. Herod himself would fall on his knees at the awesomeness of what he beholds in Jesus the Christ coming on the clouds. Jesus would have jumped off the temple in Jerusalem, into the arms of angels, so that all people could see his fame, his splendor. But instead, God draws a group of Persians towards a shack in the hill country to find a newly married couple with a toddler. 
And Mary and Joseph are just trying to get him to stop throwing his food on the floor when they hear someone knock. And the Magi seem to know in their bones that this little dilapidated house is the place. They seem to know that that nondescript house is the place they've been searching for for over a year and that this child is worth whatever they've schlepped on their camels and they fall down and they pay him homage. This is how God came to us and this is how Christ comes to us still. In the ordinary, the routine, the everyday, the wise men followed the star to find Christ and we who have been found by God are invited to follow him into the possibility that the Christ child might still be found in the weak, in the lowly, in the place that you're already tired of six days into the new year. The Magi say to us, pay attention. Pay attention to your life. Pay attention to the routine, to the mundane, to your nine to five. Pay attention to your commute on the L, over lunch with a coworker, on a flight, in a coffee shop, at a bar. Where might God meet you in your routine? Where is there space in your Monday through Friday for you to recognize God's presence in the ordinary? I was thinking about New Year's quite a bit recently, which makes sense. At New Year's, at New Year's we buckle down. We are energized to do more, to be more. I feel a little kick in the pants, get my act together, to make ourselves better, to make ourselves great. And there's a spiritual version of this as well, I think. We replace exercising more with reading the Bible more. We, exor- we replace eating more vegetables with reading the word. And all of those things are good. Like All of those things can be great cultivating good habits spiritually, physically, emotionally, mentally. Like, it's all good. But uh, I, I was recognizing in myself recently as I was scrolling through and seeing everyone's resolutions. And it seems like with everyone else's resolutions, there's this, this subconscious list that I have in my head of all the resolutions I'm not making. And this list just adds up of like, cooking more at home and reading this book and reading that book and well if that person's reading this book I should read that book and I should read my Bible more and pray more and I should work out more and, and, and I noticed that it was the same muscle in me that wants to do more push-ups it's, it's, it's the same, that's the same muscle that wants to read my Bible more you know what I mean like it's, it's coming from an impulse that's that as I was thinking about it I was thinking that impulse isn't one that I've gotten from coming to this table every week. Like, that's not a reaction and an impulse I have from being a part of the people of God, from, experience, from experiencing the, the, the table of grace every week. I was noticing in myself that, that that impulse, that pull that I feel every New Year's to be more, to do more, even spiritually, um, that that was really coming from the same place in me that all of these other things in the back of my mind that I'm not good enough for is coming from really the same place. And so I was thinking about, okay, you know, what do I do then? Um, if, if, if I feel like all of those are coming from this, uh, not from this table, but from being a part of a culture that 
continuously and over and over again tells us that we need to do more, to be more, to add things to your list. But I don't think that that muscle comes from eating at this table of grace every week. I can add another thing to my list and scratch the itch, but I don't want my routines, my rhythms, my resolutions, the road I walk down, to be guided by an impulse that I have co-opted from living in a world where I am constantly told to do more and be more. Those routines, rhythms, and resolutions will lead me towards Herod in one way or another. What then should I do? What resolution should I keep? I have to do something. This was the next step in how I felt. It's like, okay, well then what do I get to do? Like, what's, what's the thing? What's the thing I'm going to do? I want to encourage you as I'm encouraging myself to turn that New Year's ambition on its head by practicing silence in January. I was being led towards silence and then I came across an article about Thomas Keating who was a Cistercian monk who died in October of this year and he spent his life, a lot of it in silence. He lived a very contemplative life and towards the end of his life taught on contemplation a lot. And I came across this quote by him where he says, silence is God's first language. Everything else is a poor translation. Silence feels so unproductive. When you are silent, that impulse, that muscle that I was talking about, it immediately goes into motion. That impulse to improve yourself and be more, that muscle flares up immediately and says, this is stupid. You are not thinking about the right things. You are not practicing silence well. Like practicing Sabbath, practicing silence requires that you stop and take notice, that you simply be. It forces you to listen and to follow, to watch and to pay attention to yourself and to God and to the world And I found myself very easily adding lists of disciplines that I could add, but I felt like that was coming out of this impulse to do more and be more and to check things off of my list. And I felt that silence was really uncomfortable and didn't feel like checking anything off my list and that perhaps that was exactly what I was supposed to practice. And I don't think you have to go to a monastery to practice it. I think you can practice it over lunch. I think you can practice it on the commute. I think you can practice it in a conversation with someone. I think, I think being aware of the presence of God in the ordinary and the mundane is an extension of silence. And so I'm looking for ways to quiet myself and to be silent, to practice the presence of God in the ordinary and the mundane, to pay attention to the stars and see maybe if in silence I'm led somehow to Bethlehem. Creating space in the routine for silence allows you to recognize God's continuous presence leading towards Bethlehem, towards his presence in the everyday. As you begin the new year, May we put ourselves in places, silent places, where we're able to see Christ in the routine and Christ in the ordinary and Christ in the everyday. Will you pray with me?
God, I pray that you would help us quiet ourselves in a loud world. You help us quiet ourselves and rest in you. Quiet ourselves just, just to be. I pray for each one of us as we start a new year with all of our new ambitions and goals, with all of our hopes and fears for this new year, that you would meet us and that you would lead us to Christ where we might fall to our knees and pay him homage. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.